0: And justice all. Human rights are women's rights.
1: Save the world. <laughs> Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Really interesting show today. I have Tom Hart on the line. He's the U.S. executive director of the One Campaign. We have a fascinating conversation about the genesis of some of the biggest international development programs over the last, say, 15 years. And I think Genesis here is a pretty apt word choice. Tom Hart has a background in lobbying for religious institutions, including uh, the huge campaign at the end of the millennium, the late 1990s, to forgive the debts of the world's poorest countries in the world. This was called the Jubilee Campaign. So we have a fascinating conversation about that. And Tom was also in the legislative trenches during the... A debate over PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was this huge U.S. program to support uh, AIDS treatment, mostly in Africa, that passed in 2004. Really interesting conversation about that as well, so stay tuned. I caught up with Tom the day after the Republicans took control of the United States Senate in the 2014 elections. so we kick off with a brief discussion about that. Here it is, my conversation with Tom Hart of the One Campaign. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June. Global health matters is available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: Yeah, honestly, last night brought a lot of change to the players, but I think it's not going to bring a lot of change uh, to the politics or the policy around international development. Um. you know, we have worked uh, with both sides of the aisles very deliberately over the 10 years of our life for precisely this reason. Uh, the majorities of the House and Senate have switched at least twice <laughs> over that time. And so, you know, we worked very closely with incoming chairman uh, Lindsey Graham, who who will now take the gavel in terms of the, the, the appropriations for foreign operations and development. We worked very, very closely with incoming chairman uh, Bob Corker from Tennessee, uh, he's actually been the, one of the lead people on our effort related to energy addressing energy poverty, um, and he's going to so, be the new
1: chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So,
0: so, yeah, he will be the new chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Lindsey Graham will be the new chair of the Senate Foreign Op- State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Committee. So, those are the two key committees that set the policy and the funding for the things that we care about, um, and and we will obviously maintain and respect the the relationships we have with longtime friends who are the Democrats um, as we did when the Republicans were in the minority, so it's a real deliberate strategy. Which you know I think that we've we've got consistent champions for these sorts of issues in the leadership on both sides of the aisle. So the change in majority in terms of the people who control the policy and the funding, um, I think will will be pretty consistent, and we're we're. You know we're ready to work with who's ever got the gavel, and of course in this system both sides tend to agree on these issues, and they work very closely together. So um, I think the chairs will change, but uh, and the, who's sitting in which seat will change, um, but a, a lot of that agenda will move forward. Why? Now, to be Why? clear, oh, sorry. go ahead. Just, just to be clear, no, no, you know one of the big reasons things won't change a lot is no one has 60 votes in the Senate, so no one has a filibuster-proof majority. That was true yesterday when the Democrats had the majority, and it's true today when the Republicans had the majority. So, you know, that means that either the Senate will remain largely dysfunctional and not much will get passed, or serious compromise will be had. Uh, and on our issues, we're looking forward to some compromise and the two sides working together.
1: Now, why is it, do you think, that like international development and global health issues um, do kind of maintain this kind of bipartisan consensus? When other issues, um, you know, just just don't have that anymore. I mean, the only yeah. other issue I could really think of that has this kind of bipartisan consensus is is Israel. Uh, you know, where you yep. do have, you know, that that there, there's not much of a difference in the mainstream of both party and, and how you approach Israel question. Which is, I think, the same thing in in international development issues. So, like, how do you think that came about?
0: It was a long, purposeful strategy, um, and I think. By advocates, including one, but along with many, many others. And look, I think Republicans taking leadership, as they did during the Bush administration, particularly Bush, noted for his pretty historic work on HIV/AIDS. Um, you know, has helped big. Excuse me, has helped build a big tent around these issues and made international development, saving lives, getting treatment to the most vulnerable on the planet for a very little amount of money has sort of become a a safe place for both parties to work together on. And um, yeah, of course, the different parties come to the issues for different reasons. Um, So there are some Republicans who may come to issues of development more from a national security or international trade perspective. Some Democrats may come to it because of more humanitarian or it's the right thing to do. And and, and surely I've, those stereotypes don't hold. Uh, people from both sides come for a variety of reasons, but I, I do think it's become a safe place where both can work together on practical, practical life-saving programs.
1: You know, and while I think there is this kind of broad consensus that you describe for the reasons you describe, when you get in the weeds, there you know does tend to be some differences. I'm thinking specifically Absolutely. around like reproductive health issues, um, which sometimes I think unfairly get um, sort of uh, lobbed in with uh, U.S. abortion politics. Yeah. Um, I guess how do you like navigate that
0: thicket? Yeah, that to be sure there are differences, and I don't want to sugarcoat some of the tough conversations that we will con- have had and will continue to have. Um, you know, take energy poverty that we discussed earlier—whether it should be all renewable energy or somehow a mix of—and what, what the mix of non-renewable and renewable. There are vigorous debates about how to begin tackling some of this stuff, but that's good and that's normal, and we should have those debates. Most folks are in you know on the same objective of trying to address the crisis and there are clearly some hot-button issues as you mentioned like family planning um, which which there isn't a lot of um, middle ground and and building a bridge between the two parties is going to be extremely difficult if not impossible you know at one we have tried to focus on the areas where we do believe bridges can be built and the two parties can make transformative change HIV AIDS Uh, agriculture, and more recently, energy poverty appear to be some of those sweet spots where the two sides can come together and and make a big difference.
1: Um, So I guess going forward uh, in this new Congress, what are some of the big issues or big priorities or big debates that you see kind of coming down the the pipe?
0: So I, I think what's not clear is how the new Republican majority will tackle budget and appropriations. Um, There needs to be a a new conversation with the White House and and the House and Senate on overall budget and spending, and that will inevitably trickle down and impact foreign assistance funding. Um, If nothing is done, sequestration will be reimposed on the budget, which, as you know, is a sort of blunt instrument across the board cut, and that would have a pretty... Pretty negative impact on foreign assistance programs that we know work because it's an across-the-board. So it's unclear how the new majority in the Senate, along with the House, will engage with the White House on this. Um, but it's clear that they're going to have to. Other big issues. I, pardon me for repeating myself, but we do think energy is going to continue, particularly addressing energy poverty in Africa, where seven out of ten Africans have no access to electricity, will uh, be a big issue that continue that they will work on and why do you think that's going to be the table?
1: Why do you think that'll be a big issue Is it, is it the Power Africa initiative that uh, President Obama rolled out I guess like last year or so?
0: So there so there is bipartisan legislation in both the House and the Senate to codify many of the elements and expand many of the elements of power Africa. That's needed for a variety of reasons including helping d- deliver more finance for power Africa and making sure that that very important initiative lasts beyond this administration. And we've had a really warm reception uh, from Republicans and Democrats on trying to deal with energy poverty. I, there is some chance, I should note, of getting those bills passed in the lame duck session, and we're going to be fighting very hard to try to do so. Um, but there's every possibility that we will begin—we will have to begin the next Congress um, with, you know, retackling these issues legislatively in the Congress. Um, just quickly on other issues. We know that uh, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is the U.S.'s main policy in terms of trade with Africa, expires at the end of 2015. So we know the Congress will take up Africa trade issues. And again, another place where the two sides have come together multiple times over multiple administrations and Congresses uh, to expend trade benefits to Africa. So we're going to, you know, that'll be another area of discussion. Well, this was helpful.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, so pivoting a a little bit. Um, so you are the executive, the U S executive director of one, um, where do you come from?
0: Hmm. You mean going way back,
1: (laughs) going way back.
0: (laughs) So I was, I was born and raised in, in Alaska. Uh, my father, uh, is clergy and he took his young family up to the North country. Um, Thought they would stay three years and ended up staying twenty, raised their family, and that's where I grew up.
1: What kind of uh, town the... were, you, were you like in the in the rural areas, or were you? We in, started. In we
0: started in a small um, Indian village on the Koyukuk River for the first six months of my life, and then moved to Anchorage, and then spent most of the time in Fairbanks. Um, I have like so no
1: points of reference for Alaska, unfortunately. You, um,
0: don't, you don't have points of reference. <laughs> I, I
1: don't. So um,
0: you should go up. It's
1: awesome. Uh, it looks it looks lovely from what I can tell. Um so uh what 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 denomination? Uh Episcopal. Okay.
0: Episcopal church, yeah. Is
1: that pretty dominant in Alaska?
0: Yeah, it was um it is one of the larger churches in Alaska and 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 at that time that he went up there um uh there was a lot of, you know, just a lot of activity in the church and uh, it was during the during the oil boom years and all the rest. So so I grew up there and then um uh, right when I was entering high school, we moved back east uh, to New Hampshire to be closer to grandparents and other family, and um, went to school in New Hampshire, and then after graduating there, went to Harvard um, for my undergraduate, and once I graduated, I moved to Washington with no job and no place to live, but I what didn't made know you, to go my D.C.? government degree, so okay. that's why I, why I wanted to come.
1: Why Why D.C.? Why did you choose that? I'm sure most of your classmates were getting into like the finance industry.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I really got captivated by the process of policy making and what difference I could bring to things that I cared about by working within the system. So I was really interested to come to Washington and see uh, what I could work on. International issues always sort of were a keen interest. Um, not really sure why that that captured me, but it th- that was the area. And so. I moved to DC and I worked for several years up on Capitol Hill and got a first-hand education as to how legislation is actually made. So did you start out that.
1: as like a staff assistant like the lowest rung on the uh, the poll?
0: I was pretty fortunate that I ended up working for a committee, the committee ah. on Veterans Affairs in the Senate, and so I was um, I actually was came in the door not answering phones but helping one of the professional staff write legislation and write you know, hearing notes and speeches, so I, I what was pretty year? fortunate in that way. About what year are you talking? This was 90, 91, 92.
1: Okay, so like right, sort of uh, after the the Persian Gulf War, or kind of yeah, during exactly. and after.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So were the sort of veterans issues that you were facing pertaining to people coming back from the first Gulf War?
0: Well, just the first, yeah, exactly. We began the first cases of, uh, uh, not cases, the first veterans coming back from those wars were were there. A lot of the issues that, we were still dealing with a lot of interesting veterans issues from the Vietnam, and indeed at that time still World War II vets and Korean War vets, a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of homelessness, all issues that remain pretty serious issues confronting the veterans community uh, today uh, were big issues then too. So,
1: Were you sort of first interacting with the Gulf War syndrome that, that sort of was coined around that term yeah, from veterans exactly coming back? Yeah, right. exactly
0: So how,
1: like, were you working on legislation to address that or, or how, how did that, how did you sort of, um, you know... Approach that issue, which was, I remember, yeah, like a very the, thorny political issue at the time because it was, really was. Because, like, it the really Defense was. Department, I'm trying to remember, was, was sort of downplaying it or saying it's really not based in fact, and others um, were was. saying not. It,
0: there was a lot of sort of initial, as you, you're remembering correctly, a lot of initial denial that it was a real phenomenon and then confusion about how to address it. And yes, the chairman I worked for, you know, had lots of hearings and draft legislation and to, to try to tackle it. And I, you know, although that wasn't the area that I was particularly focused on, um, the, the committee was, it was a big deal to try to tackle that and do what we could for those returning.
1: Uh, so how long were you on that committee for?
0: About three years.
1: Mm-hmm. And then did you stay on Capitol Hill?
0: No, I, I left the Capitol Hill um, and went to work for the Episcopal Church. So as I told you earlier, my father's an Episcopal priest, and I'd known that the National Episcopal Church here in the U.S. had a small government relations office up on Capitol Hill, and I'd known them for some time. But at, I, I got in touch with them, and, and they hired me. Um, and, and there, in fact, I did start at the bottom of the rung. I was an intern during college, and then I was a, an assistant. And then at, after a few years, I ended up running the office, which I did for three or four years, and so what are
1: uh, that's that's yep. fascinating. Like, what I know that a lot of the, the mainline denominations and probably other denominations as well have like government relations arms. Yeah, um, exactly. What I guess what are like the policy priorities of of like the Episcopal Church?
0: I mean, uh, like what what kind of issues were you were you pressing on? The best the better question is what wasn't the Episcopal Church's position on a particular issue? When you're, mm. you know, what is God not interested in? <laughs> so well, and I, I mean, say that like a bit tongue in cheek, but the fact is is that the church had positions on everything from health care reform to immigration to Middle East peace to fighting AIDS in Africa to to the environment. So you name it. And it was a fascinating and wonderful experience for me, partly because I'd grown up, you know, the church had been the family business, and it was fun to look at my profession through the eyes, through the lens of of what had been the family business. But also it was fun because I got to work on dozens and dozens of issues and learn sort of, you know, take the perspective of the church, find out what was going on in Washington, translate the positions into practical policy initiatives, and, and work with members of Congress on both sides, which is where I really sort of began my work by bipartisan work, mm-hmm. and of course, Episcopalians on the Hill are pretty much fifty-fifty, Republican Democrat, as they are people sitting in the pews, about fifty-fifty. So really, because uh, you
1: know, the Episcopalian Church seems to have like a reputation, as at least in the U.S., as being a little more liberal, uh, at least a little more on the liberal side. Um, but you're saying that that's it's pretty much split down the middle, conservatives and, and liberals. At least d- you uh, know, it, denominationally, it, I mean, there are, there are women clergy. You know, the, yeah. uh, I think these days. You can get uh, same-sex uh, marriage at Episcopal churches. So, like, what's the, you know,
0: well, this is, is certainly true, and we're talking yeah. twelve years ago, right? right. So, so I, the demogra- I'm not, i don't know what the demographics of the church are, but uh, you know, your average pew sitters, your average, you know, community church um, had a, had pretty good diversity. Its positions, you're quite right, uh, were by and large left of center. If you were going to term a church's position in, mm-hmm. in a political spectrum. Um, certainly, forward-leaning on women's ordination and, and lots of other issues like that. Um, but uh, you know, but the fact is, is that when you're when you're the guy representing a multi-million member faith community, you know, you you've got to be sensitive to the people you're representing. I just like anybody sitting in Washington representing her people, and so it's pretty clear that we had a diverse set of views about a lot of things, and I sought to find those issues where we could build a lot of common ground.
1: And I mean, there, and there've been schisms in, in the Episcopalian uh, church over the last few years over some of these hot button issues, particularly when you look at the Anglican church, you know, more broadly uh, yeah. between like their divisions. I think there are some like African denominations kind of split with the main line after yeah. uh, same sex marriage and women ordination came, came to be exactly. that I would imagine that's like a very difficult um You know, very difficult to navigate if if you're trying to represent sort of the entire denomination on Capitol Hill when you have these kind of splits and schisms.
0: Yeah, it definitely was. Although one reason why I really found got a lot of energy and a lot of support around issues confronting Africa is that was an area where no matter what your belief in terms of, you know, uh, blessing a same-sex marriage or women's ordination, should we fight for the poorest people on the planet in Africa? The answer was, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> so again, it's, it's a little bit of, where can we find common ground and move the ball forward? And, you know, of course, the church is going to have its divisions over church-related issues. Um, you know, I, as the public policy guy in B.C., I, I tried to—that wasn't front and center for me. The, the front and center issues were, how could the church partner with the government to make a difference in the lives of people um, in Africa and in the United States? Every day, I would have clergy, bishops, and others from Africa calling or coming to the office to say, hey, how can we work together to fight X, You know, poverty, uh, disease, uh, kids not in school? And that really was what sparked my interest in the challenges around development and how I, got to know, how I got to know Bono, and ultimately, that led to my moving over to help start the One campaign.
1: So when was the first time that you met Bono?
0: It must have been 1998 during a campaign we were both working on called Jubilee 2000, which was a an effort to cancel the unpayable debts owed from African countries to rich institutions. Um, and, you know, at that time, many African countries were, were spending more on debt service than they were on health and education for their own people. So there was a global campaign, which Bono served as the sort of Celebrity spokesperson, if you can say, and uh, I helped lead a coalition of faith groups and other development groups here in the U.S. to try to to try to tackle that problem.
1: Uh, and so these were debts that um, you know less developed countries owed groups like the IMF and the World Bank and and presumably other financial institutions.
0: Exactly right. As well as as well as France and Germany and the U.K. and to some small extent the U.S. The U.S. hadn't given a lot of loans to African countries, but some. So they were both um, the direct loans country to country and to the multilateral institutions.
1: Um,
0: And And it was essentially a global bankruptcy deal. I mean, because nation states don't have a formal bankruptcy process they can go through, of course, because that happens at the national level. But this was in essence an attempt to, under certain conditions, get all the creditors at the table to say, all right, we'll relieve uh, the debts and you need to direct what you were paying, um, on debts into the development of your own people.
1: Was it a pretty just blanket cancellation of the debts or was there some sort of, you know, deals or or negotiations to pay some of the debt?
0: So there was, um, it was, it was a a bit of a mix. Um, it, it was not unconditional writing off of everything And it came in a bit, it came in really two big phases, one in 99 and 2000, where 100% of the bilateral debts, the debts owed from Mozambique to France, for example, Um, and then a chunk, a piece of the debts owed to the IMF and World Bank. So that was the first phase. And that was, again, conditioned on, hey, whatever you were paying in debt service needs to now be directed to development. So it was not unconditional. And then in 2005, we worked, so leaping ahead a few years, working with the Bush administration and with the U.K. government, we, uh, we then took the next step of 100% multilateral debt cancellation for these countries that qualified. So countries would have to go through quite a rigorous process to qualify, and then they would first get this bilateral cancellation, and then, and then in, uh, in 2005, we created a process in which they could get the rest of it written off.
1: Yeah, and I, I remember the the Jubilee campaign. I mean, it had that sort of millennium two thousand um, sort of inflection point, and I think that was probably a pretty important rallying cry for the faith community, right? I mean, I remember yeah. Pope John yeah. Paul was was behind this, and you had exactly. you had all you, you know you had all these disparate religious groups who were all like saying, "Let's use the millennium as a time to to forgive these debts." Um, it, it seemed like a, a pretty good com- point of, of coming together for a lot of these kind of different groups.
0: I, I I completely agree. It was a genius piece of marketing and and uh, bringing together of of issue with with a with a moment in history, you know. For for faith communities, Sabbaths obviously have enormous meaning, and sabbatic goals every seven years. Well, in in Leviticus, it describes a jubilee year, seven times seven, and so every fifty years is is a sort of jubilee which is described as you let your slaves go free, you let the land lie fallow, and you cancel debts. Well, going forward with that notion, 2000 is sort of a super jubilee. Every 50 years, well this is not just the, a century with you know two zeros, this, has got, <laughs> this is a millennium. And so being able to link that notion of canceling debts and starting fresh for a new millennium, really captured the attention of faith communities, um, and Can I one ask reason the, why they were yeah.
1: Like, how or where did this idea come from? I mean, at some point, there are some people sitting around a room, right, who said, "Let's use this. Let's create a campaign <laughs> around this."
0: Were yeah. you in that meeting? Yeah, you know what? I wasn't in that meeting. I was not. But uh, but actually, if I'm not mistaken, Jamie Drummond, who is another co-founder of of One uh... and a dear friend uh, of mine was part of those early conversations yeah, obviously debt cancellation and unsustainable debts wasn't a new issue that came up had been percolating around for for years but the seizing of the opportunity and the harnessing of the faith community um... to become advocates for this jubilee was something uh... you know concocted in uh... first started in the uk among some campaigners and then really really spread like wildfire and then, you know, in the U.S., one of the things I was helpful in doing is get, getting this to more religiously conservative. Like, we, we talked to Pat Robertson, and he was immediately understood what we were talking about, because we've described it in, in the terms that I said earlier, in terms of the, the Jubilee year. So we were able to get both religious left and religious right, uh, which provided the kind of political oomph and political cover for politicians to, to take action.
1: Um, so now, of course, you're now a director of an organization that was co-founded by Bono. What was your, your first sort of personal interaction with him like um,
0: hmm.
1: as part if of this Jubilee
0: ser- program? Yeah, if memory serves, it was, it was around a time where he and Bobby Shriver and a few others came to Washington um, to talk to the Clinton administration about debt cancellation. And they had quite good um, entree into that administration, but of course, once he's convinced the President, you still have the Congress to convince the way debt relief had to happen was there had to be funding appropriated, and the authorizations given by Congress. So we were we, the coalition, were working mostly legislatively with Congress to develop legislation, bipartisan legislation. And so I think I first time I met Bono, we were talking about which group of senators he should go talk to to try to get this legislation moving. And who did you um,
1: decide was his uh, prime no, target? I can't
0: remember. I, I can't remember. Well, there are those
1: famous <laughs> meetings with him, and like, um, uh, not Henry. Well, Henry Hyde was a member of Congress, but um, yeah, Helms. You maybe uh, you
0: remember. may remember Jesse Jesse Helms. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah. So so that well, a, a well described meeting or a well known meeting that he had with Jesse Helms, who you know was a ardent opponent of foreign aid and and and. and one of the toughest guys on the Hill, uh, in terms of something like debt cancellation, and you know, to Bono's credit, um, he always was the guy who wanted to, to tackle the toughest conversations first. No sense in just talking to the people who agree with you. Um, and and I, you know, again, to his credit, Bono being uh, masterful at, at, at sort of engaging different audiences. He he described the biblical link to Jubilee. He talked about how um this is an opportunity to have help Africa, you know, save lives and help kids grow up and get an education and all the rest. And you know, combining that heartfelt doing good with sort of hard headed here are the facts, here are the debt to export ratios we need to do, here are the studies from the World Bank that shows how we can do it. Here are the conditions. So that combo of head and heart is something that Bono was very good at, and I think One has kept that that similar uh, formula as we've as we've grown and kept working.
1: And so One was sort of formed kind of out of this Jubilee uh, movement, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So how, how how was One like? How did that happen? What what was like the chronology
0: of that? Well, uh, to be clear, the Jubilee two thousand movement actually. Um, there is, continues to be a Jubilee USA um, organization. So it wasn't, right. it's not the same organizational structure. But, but most of us who got together and helped start one did work in that, uh, on that campaign. Um, people like Jamie and myself, and, and, and several others. So, you know, it grew out of a relationship with Bono and relationships with each other, and realizing that through the Jubilee campaign, we'd created a set of relationships on the left and the right. Uh, related to tackling African poverty that we wanted to build on. And that there was this interesting coalition of people that that now included people like Jesse Helms um, and Bill Frist and Jesse Jackson Jr. and Dick Durbin. You know, right and left came together around the notion of of canceling debts. So the clear and ever-present challenge that Africa faced at that time, of course, was the scourge of HIV-AIDS. And so we thought, okay, let's take a bit of the magic that w- that had been created around Jubilee and try to apply it to that campaign around fighting HIV.
1: Um, and so, so PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, was passed in 2003, correct? Um, it was
0: announced... It was announced in 2003, the bill okay. actually passed in 2004 and the first funding was in 2004.
1: So where where did that kernel of an idea come from? Like how where where did PepFar originate?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, from a bunch of places. So you'll excuse me if I sort of try to name the various streams and only only the Lord knows what exactly was the tipping point. Um, so the challenges confronting Africa on HIV AIDS were getting more and more known, especially among policymakers who were concerned about Africa and who had worked on debt cancellation and the rest. So Bill Frist and Jesse Helms actually suggested in an op-ed in the Washington Post, what can we do to address AIDS orphans? Uh, and how can we prevent the transmission of uh, HIV from mother to child? Mother to child? I mean, so just, per- just to
1: stop you for one second, I mean, this is a pretty big step for Jesse Helms, who, you know, during yeah. the, the AIDS crisis in the U.S. was like a, an ardent opponent of, you know, domestically fighting AIDS because it was like a scourge of, of the gay community. Uh, so, yeah, this, exactly. so somehow he made this this leap.
0: He did. And he he actually ended up apologizing for his position uh, against helping people fighting AIDS later in his, his life and in his career, and I mean it really was one, a, quite a dramatic turnabout, and um, and he made an incredible difference once he decided that this is something where we can that we can tackle mm-hmm. and make a big difference on. Um, so um, I interrupted
1: you though. You're talking about the, their op-ed,
0: the so their Dr. op-ed, which right. then turned into legislation, targeted a, 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 the hardest hit countries in Africa and uh, was a program to help prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV AIDS. Um, Protect the kids from getting, you know, uh, innocent victims would be the language that they used at the time, from getting HIV. And then at the same time we and Bono were having conversations with the fairly young Bush administration. This of course is post 9-11 so again the mood in the country had shifted from this was going to be the education president, as he said, all of a sudden, now we are dealing with global affairs in a way, in our backyard, in a way that obviously no one ever thought of. And so there was a palpable need and desire from the Bush administration to respond to global affairs on a variety of fronts, obviously, uh, one being uh, the Iraq war and Afghanistan and all the rest. The other being, hey, how we relate to the poorest countries and foreign assistance is a major tool in our toolbox. What can we do? And in that conversation, you know, the, there really were two ideas um, that we put forward and that were percolating to the administration from a variety of places. One was gather around good-performing poor countries, and the other is tackle HIV-AIDS, the biggest health crisis that, you know, that the continent certainly has ever faced. And um, and the Bush administration really seemed, but didn't really seem, they really did Grab that idea and develop it into something that has just been transformative. and um, it has been described to me by people in the Oval Office meeting as they were president was presented with three options, sort of small, medium, and large, and he, he absolutely went for the large, you know with the, and the idea is if we can make a difference in this way to the most vulnerable, we should. And so he proposed the $15 billion, five-year PEPFAR uh, with a focus on treatment, which, I, you know, again, is something as remarkable as anything about this because only months before this proposal, senior government officials said, oh, we can't treat people in Africa. They don't have wristwatches. They won't know when to take this complicated regimen of medicines, and, and it just won't work. So, and, and that was not an uncommon... Uncommonly, uh, uncommon view from politicians right and left at the time.
1: Well, it's also it the now, most expensive way to, to fight AIDS, especially at well, that exactly. time when, when the prices had been It was $10,000 a year.
0: Yeah, yeah I it think- was $10,000 a year. How would you do that? It's just not possible. It's out of the reach of your Af- average African villager and certainly out of reach at, you know, at the scale that foreign aid budgets could, could handle. So as, as sort of awful as that sounds today, Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sort of common. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Acceptable um, view, generally, generally accepted view. What and it's worth was, pointing out yeah, that, that
1: today it's like uh, around hundred dollars per person, right? Um, exactly. And that's largely due to PEPFAR and, and the Clinton Foundation's negotiating prowess and UNITAID and all these groups. Kind of, but but at the time, I mean, that that's that's sort of mind blowing that they would rally around this treatment idea.
0: It was, and it it was, and it. So you've you've nailed it, which is a serious sea change in political views and in technology. You know, remember these were multiple pills having to be taken at different times of day, some with food, some without. Now down to two pills a day, and gone from ten thousand dollars for treatment to a hundred dollars. So incredible sea change in the technology and the politics and the funding, um, which we shouldn't forget. Funding for global HIV-AIDS at the end of the Clinton administration was $400 million. Um, and Bush proposed $15 billion over five years. So those sorts of sea changes obviously um, completely changed the game in terms of, of the U.S. and indeed the global response to HIV. And then something equally remarkable happened once people started getting treated. Treatment began, began to become prevention. As mm-hmm. soon as you get people on antiretroviral treatment, they're less likely to spread the disease.
1: Um, and this is relatively and, new research that you're that you're referencing. This is just exactly. research that's a couple of years old where it's they call it in the the term of art is treatment as prevention.
0: Exactly. And that, you know, so the, so the resistance to treating people, just just focusing on prevention actually doesn't work and there are some real lessons for us in other areas in this regard. Lo- Large-scale treatment of people turned out to be one of the most effective ways of preventing the spread, um, and so has led to a remarkable moment, which we just had in 2013, which we call the tipping point, where for the first time in history, more people were put on treatment for HIV than caught it uh, last year. So it's a, great, it's a great moment. Obviously, it means we're not done, but it mm-hmm. does show that, that, we, that we're finally catching up with the, with the pace of the disease.
1: Um, So, uh, you know, Bush proposed PEPFAR, but it still had to make its way through Congress. Was there, uh, was was it a tough battle? Was it a tough fight? I have some vague recollections of it, but I wasn't quite as in the the weeds at the time.
0: Yeah, no, it it was a very tough fight um, with, uh, and we were right in the middle of it, um, trying to build a a way through. Um, Lots of disagreements between Republicans and Democrats, particularly over prevention, Um, the, the notion of ABC, abstinence, be faithful and condoms, um, whether you, you know, which of those three is more important, which ideologically should you support, blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that scheme ended up being a bit of a compromise and unsettling compromise for everyone, which is, we're going to focus on everything. Turns out to be pretty smart policy actually on the ground. Um, and there were lots of fights over whether family planning should be included in the fight against AIDS. It ended up not being. um, Lots of concerns about what the role of the faith community, are we just going to be funding a bunch of churches to preach abstinence, or are they actually going to have to deliver medicine, and blah, blah, blah. So lots of really gritty debates about how to do this program. What was remarkable about it was no one was saying that we shouldn't do it. There was wide recognition by leaders on all sides, including you mentioned Henry Hyde and his Democratic partner on that committee, Tom Lantos, mm-hmm. um, that we had to address this. So the spirit of, we all recognize the problem. Let's have a good row over exactly how to do it, but we all know we have to bridge the differences. And it, and it turns out that, you know, legislation is never perfect, but what it did was create massive permanent change, um, uh, on the ground. And so yeah, all, you know, that's continued.
1: I was at uh, Tom Lantos' uh, memorial service on Capitol Hill. Oh, yeah. I guess when he passed away in 2007, uh, I, I recall, and, and Bono spoke, you know, sang a yeah. song. Um, but you know, so so did um, Condoleezza Rice, and and exactly. you know, I think it's sort of a testament to again to that sort of bipartisan spirit in which this this um, PEPFAR was was passed. Yeah. Um, you also, I think, alluded to but did not mention by name the Millennium Challenge Corporation.
0: Yeah. Exactly. I um.
1: So, <laughs> um, so w- So, so that idea again. A similar genesis. Um, was that as difficult? Well, first, can you explain the Millennium Challenge Corporation to people who might not know what it is? And then, sort of, describe how it it it, it was birthed as U.S. policy.
0: Sure. Yeah, the Millennium Challenge Corporation is a is a one of the U.S. programs that focuses quite large sums of assistance to very well governed poor countries. So in other words, if countries are committed to good governance and open markets, uh, human rights and democracy, as well as a commitment to fighting poverty, they will qualify for the MCC. And then once qualified, they sit across the table from the U.S. government and negotiate. Here's here's the biggest barriers to fighting poverty in our country, whether it's a port or whether it's numbers of kids out of school or whether it's lack of electricity, here are the biggest barriers to growth. And we'd like to work with the U.S. government to knock down those barriers. And so that across-the-table negotiation, which, by the way, sounds obvious when you say it, but that's not the way most aid programs work across the Mm -hmm. world. It was quite innovative when it was proposed. And a lot of, it was interesting, a lot of poor countries were like, well, just tell us what you want to fund. And the MCC said, no, you tell us what you need, and then we'll figure out what makes sense. Um and that sort of idea of partnership and negotiation um uh has been a, a real a real success. Anyway, it was it was really birthed around the idea that and it, it, it drew directly from the Jubilee campaign, that there are a set of very poor but emerging countries we focused on Africa, but globally, that are respectful of human rights, are you know, well-governed, have have multi-party democracies, clearly fragile, clearly not perfect, um, our own democracy is not perfect, <laughs> um, but that we could work with, the United States and, and this young Bush administration could work with and, and focus additional resources on really showing how development can work. Remember, in this country, and this is still a challenge today, but particularly difficult at this time most people think we spend a quarter of our budget on foreign aid and that it's all wasted the notion that foreign aid is even worth doing is constantly under assault and and we and and the Bush administration readily agreed that we needed to prove the case of foreign aid and the best way to do that was to focus on very poor but well-governed poor countries where we believe that our aid dollars would uh, make the biggest gains. So that was really the idea behind it. And looking at a number of the countries that had qualified for debt relief and saying, "Okay, which ones of these can we work with? They're doing really well with debt relief. What else do they need to do? What else are their needs? Who can negotiate a good compact?" Those are the sort of kernels or seeds that have bloomed into MCC, um, and uh, you know, it's it's doing remarkable stuff. Well, is home. it?
1: Did it have or has it been successful as sort of an aspirational club to which countries that are in the bubble of qualifying might want to implement some reforms so they they can sort of, you know, have this fire hose of aid potentially sort of reach their their coffers? Like, you know, does it inspire good behavior? Yeah. or is so there evidence actually, to say that it say that it has i should say no there so the intention is. probably is yeah
0: <laughs> well clearly the intention was there in order to incentivize good behavior and the evidence is there that in in a number of places it's worked it's not worked universally and there are some countries that have been mcc um qualifiers who then have not qualified because of a coup or some other <laughs> failure but those are largely the exceptions um it's called the mcc effect so a good example is lesotho was trying to qualify for to, to be eligible for the MCC and and yet they needed to pass uh, a law and they did in fact pass the law allowing women to own land um, and they did that in order to achieve a certain level uh, on one of the indicators in order to qualify um, and there are a number of examples like that where countries have made specific reforms on governance on fighting corruption on markets on number of days to open a business all these indicators that are they're required to hit in order to qualify, so um, so that it's been very very good for that. Uh,
1: well, I think we might leave it there. Thank you so much, Tom. This was just some some great stories on on the genesis of Pepfar, the MCC, the Jubilee campaign, and, and your your personal story. So thank you.
0: Okay, great. I, is there anything else that? Uh, I'm just trying to think that anything we should, you want to plug?
1: Anything anything else you want to plug? The the, the time is yours
0: yeah well so let me let me plug two things one thing is you know for your listeners obviously anybody who wants more information should go to the website one.org um, well we, we welcome that and uh, you know we have about two million members in the US who we try to get to talk to their legislators and the administration on these issues We're not asking for people's money uh, we're not a typical charity in that way we're asking for people's voice um, in terms of our advocacy the other the other thing I just want to raise, um, since we spent a bit of time looking back, is looking forward. So the Millennium Development Goals have sort of been our North Star for our whole existence. They are – we don't talk a lot about them in the United States because they're sort of a bad United Nations acronym. But they really do lay out the, a set of goals that the development community has worked toward for the last 15 years, getting kids in school, halting the spread of AIDS, uh, you know, making sure people don't go to bed hungry – Those goals expire at the end of next year, and um, by and large, about two-thirds of them have been achieved, which, you know, it's not bad, (laughs) it's not bad, considering, uh, considering the challenges and the sort of how audacious they were. So we're very much engaged now in thinking through, at a global level, what the next set of development goals will be, really under the chapeau of ending extreme poverty, which we've seen in the last... 15 20 years extreme poverty cut in half not many people know that um but extreme poverty has been cut in half and it is it is conceivable that we could eliminate it altogether on the planet but only if we keep our foot on the gas pedal so that's a that's a big another big set of audacious ideas that we're really looking forward to in mobilizing people around.
1: You know, and it looks like just from based on my own reporting around the UN that um, the goal of eliminating poverty, extreme poverty by 2030 to be included in the sustainable development goals uh, exactly. is, is almost certainly going to be the number one top goal and it will survive like debates in the general assembly and, and everything exactly. else that's going to happen over the course of the year. So uh, it looks like we're, we're, we're going to get there not for certain, but, but it, Chances are that will be the top goal.
0: Well, but far more important than the goal, of course, is will the countries then mobilize the resources, the willpower uh, to actually get it done? So I agree with you. I, I We're very confident the goal, and many others, including including eliminating HIV and preventable child death and getting every kid in school, will will be part of the set of goals. We're quite excited that to work on actually seeing those goals become a reality through additional financing. And that, just doesn't, that doesn't mean just foreign aid. Actually, we, we, we're seeing uh, private sector investment and, and, perhaps most importantly, development from countries themselves uh, using their own resources and directing their own uh, uh, resources to their own development as being the big area of growth in terms of financing. And mobilizing a lot of people to hold their government's account both in the north and in the global south, uh, to, to, to see these goals actually achieved over the next 15 years. So that's going to be a big piece of our work moving forward.
1: Excellent. Uh, well, let's do it. Uh, thank Great. you. Thank you so much, right. Tom. This is, this is excellent. Fantastic. Well, appreciate the opportunity. Alright, well, I learned a lot from that. Thank you guys for listening. Remember, I have a whole store of archives of these kind of evergreen conversations about fascinating individuals and their intersection with big policy debates and discussions of the day. So check it out. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes if you have not already. I'm going to have a standalone app, hopefully in the next month or so, uh, available for download, also for free. So check that out when time comes, and we'll see you next time. Uh, One more thing, quickly, if you have not already done so, please leave a review on iTunes if you like this podcast. Um, It helps other people discover the podcast. My understanding is the more reviews you get, the higher your search ranking is within the iTunes search sphere. Uh, So people that are looking for foreign policy podcasts might stumble across Global Dispatches. Anyway, thank you guys for listening, and I will see you next time. Bye.